This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It's 5.08. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Sharad. First up, we are in the final stretch. We're heading towards polling day. And with that come the daily predictions, the polls and numbers suggesting who's going to win, what's going to happen. But what are the limitations of these polls? That's what we're getting into today. Yeah, it's very interesting because some people believe that polls, in fact, help shape outcomes because they um, they shape the way you feel about the, the whole act of polling and your the, the candidate you want to vote for, the candidate you're fighting against, as it were. And uh, so the mood of the, the nation, as it were, uh, going into the polls uh, could turn on a poll, at least a set of polls that consistently show a, or describe a narrative uh, that uh, shapes news agendas and such. So I, got, I thought about this quite a bit because obviously we've been seeing a lot of them being shared and a lot of indications about what to expect from the elections. And I started thinking about what the purpose is of these polls in the first place, because are they meant to inform voters about what to expect? Are they meant to tell voters, prepare yourself for this? And I couldn't come up with a great answer, to be honest, because what purpose do they really serve to the average um, Malaysian? Well, I think th- th- there is a bit of a history to this, and that is the development of uh, professional poll- polling uh, as an enterprise. And uh, it's used not just as we see often in the in the media, which is uh, to describe things like outcomes, but also used by political parties internally to get a sense of uh, a constituency or a state or even the nation uh, and their campaign, right? So it could be quite um, uh, granular in its approach. It's not just about who's who's the most popular, though that's a very popular question, right? So we're going to come back to this, uh, especially in the first past the poll system. What is the purpose of actually uh, polling popularity mm. of PMs or of PM candidates? But uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a huge history behind it, and it's become a staple in democratic societies to have polling. Though a lot of democratic societies have also seen the downside, and some of uh, whom uh, have decided to ban polling, at least on polling day and on the eve. Because I was thinking about all of those people, who, some of whom have messaged into the show as well to say, um, oh, my constituency is a lock for this particular party, so there's no point in me going out to vote. My state is always this party, so I'm not going to vote. And I wonder whether sometimes these polls end up being counterintuitive, that they create an impression um, that the results are somehow already set and then become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what I think pollsters, um, well, at least critics of pollsters, uh, are, you know, point to, but, uh, and, and they fear. And sometimes it's not even that, um, and I think there was an example that was given, because in Britain there was some discussion about banning polls, uh, polling, uh, was that uh, it can shape the news agenda. So say, for instance, there's a lot of discussion or, or polls that suggest a hung parliament. Then the conversation stops being about the political party or its uh, agenda, but who's going to be able to form a government? And that becomes the dominant narrative. And maybe some of us aren't swept up by what the media puts out there, but others are. And so that, that's the concern. So we're talking about those polls and predictions that tend to come out around this time. Uh, and we're asking you, do you put a lot of stock in them? 
You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred, WhatsApp, or send us a voice note zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we'll be speaking with Devesh Deva, who is a data scientist and economist. So keep it here on the evening edition, BFM eighty nine point nine. Because freedom matters, BFM eighty nine point nine. It's 5.14. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Sharad. And we're talking about uh, the predictions and the polls that happened before the elections and trying to understand um, whether they're all that useful, what their purpose might be. So we are asking you, do you put a lot of stock in these predictions? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. You can send us a voice note there as well. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now is Devish Deva, who's a data scientist and economist. Devish, good to have you back with us. Hi, good evening. Pleasure to be here. So we're nearing GE15 and we're seeing a lot of predictions um, about the election and the outcomes. And you recently, in fact, called out a prediction uh, for faulty research. <laughs> How did you come to this conclusion? It was really two things. Uh, one is a statistical reason. The other, I think, is much more easily understood. The first was simply sample, the sample size used. It was you know, really too small for me to have any confidence in the result of the poll. Especially considering that, you know, okay, so say we have a voting population of 21 million, maybe sampling a few thousand is enough to give you confidence in the result. But the thing is, many constituencies are very different from each other. So if you start zooming into specific constituencies, especially the ones which, you know, might be swing areas and tell me that you only sampled an average of five people per area, I'm not going to really believe the results of your, of your poll or survey. So that was the first reason. The second reason is that they claim to have surveyed the people between 8th and 20th of October. And you know, they say a week is a long time in politics. What about a month? <laughs> you know, that, that was close to the time when the polls had just been announced. And we've had various, I would say, high-profile events since then, including nationwide floods uh, becoming worse and worse. You have shutdowns of the LRTs, greatly swinging opinion and sentiment in the Klang Valley. And I think those things matter in terms of gauging national sentiment. So to claim that a poll done between October 8th and 20th is in any way representative, I think is stretching it a little bit. Can I ask you a basic question about, you know, the the credibility of the pollster in, in mm. determining whether you trust them or not? If this is, and I, I'm looking at that particular poll that you had commented on, I didn't recognize the name of the pollster. Uh, is yep. that, is a history um important to your assessment or is it merely looking at methodology that's leading you to those conclusions? That's a, a wonderful question and maybe I'll, I'll go a bit deeper into this because I think it maybe it might help people to get a sense of how um, someone from a statistical perspective might judge the quality of these polls. So I think when publishing a poll, it's very important if you're doing it from an academically rigorous point of view to also provide information on three things. The first, as a matter of transparency, is all the predictions that you've made in the past and whether they've come true or not. So when I see a pollster providing transparent information on their history of predictions and telling us whether it came true or whether it was completely wrong, that actually gives me more confidence that they are very reflective about their methodology. So that's point number one. I think. Point number two is, do they actually make their methodology transparent, because in this case, I couldn't really find much source material about how the poll was conducted, so on and so forth. And when I find people trying to mask those details, 
it becomes a little bit harder for me to believe the results of the poll. And of course, the third thing is, in many cases, the researchers who do this don't intend for their results to have such wide-ranging consequences, but it gets amplified by the media, sometimes, unfortunately, for the sake of headline. So I can't really blame the researcher in that case, but it just goes to show that something you have to bear in mind in the current day and age. So you mentioned numbers earlier and what might be um, a number that is representative enough, right? If you take us through best practices, what sorts of numbers and processes need to be in place so that a poll to, uh, can be considered comprehensive or well-conducted? Mm-hmm. Okay. It really boils down to two things, and I'll try to just to make this um, as little involved with statistical jargon as possible. Essentially, it boils down to I'm trying to get a sense of how the nation will vote by sampling some random people. So instead of asking all 21 million people how they're going to vote, I mean, that's basically running an election. I instead ask a few people from among the 21 million what their voting preferences are like. In order for this few people to be considered representative of how the entire population will vote, there are two really important things that need to be true. The first is those people have to be randomly selected. That's really important because if they're not randomly selected, for instance, if I decided to just take all of the people in my survey from the KL area, then of course you wouldn't say that that was considered to be a representative number. You would just say, oh, well, that's biased towards KL voters. So in that sense, it has to be random and it has to be random controlling for certain principal variables. So there has to be a good representation of, say, the different constituencies, the different ethnicities, or whatever other demographic variable might be considered to be critical in determining a person's vote. So usually this is, you know, in the case of elections, we usually look at three things, sorry, four things, which is the place where they live, their ethnicity, their age, and their gender. These four things generally tend to be quite predictive of how people will vote when you do sampling. So that's number one. The second is really what margin of error are you looking for? Because I could just you know, take one person, ask them how they're feeling, and I could claim that that's a survey, right? I mean, technically that is a survey, but of course the margin of error on my survey is huge. So when a pollster is deciding on a number for the survey, they also need to decide how certain do I want to be of my result? Is it a 5% margin of error? Is it a 10% margin of error? And from there you decide your required number generally, for a nationwide poll, I would expect between two to 3,000, although, of course, I understand that you know, this may not be feasible on a, given the high frequency of the survey being done, in which case I would say just be more transparent. Tell us what the margin of error is. Tell us if your past predictions have come true. And let people decide for themselves after reviewing the complete history of your data rather than just selective data that are being reported uh, without any other context. Well, if I understand correctly, I mean, polls are kind of snapshots in time. So how, mm-hmm. how can we account for a dynamic, often emotive process as <laughs> an election will be? I mean, what exactly about a poll can we believe? That's a very good question, Sharad. And I, I think it really depends on what you as a voter are looking for from the poll. Are you, are you looking at it just from an academic point of view uh, to get a sense of how other people are voting? Or are you actually looking at those polls in order to tell you what the best strategic option for your vote is? Because, and this is something I I hope we get to discuss a bit, but the danger with these polls is that sometimes, especially if they are done in a 
in a you know roughshod manner or done very hastily, the results can become viral overnight, and it actually influences the way that people interact with their own thinking about how they should vote. Because you know, if you feel that a certain party is popular, you might decide, you know, okay, I'll just go with the winning choice because I want my vote to matter. We do have this message from Mizi, um, and they say, in my opinion, polling of any type is strictly undue influence and a dangerous weapon in the hands of unscrupulous people who might have a private agenda. If I had things my way, polls should be banned. How would you respond mm. to that? All right. I think I would first say that there are three important things to keep in mind, like in terms of influence on the electorate when it comes to these polls. The first is confirmation bias, something we're all very familiar with. It's basically the effect where if you see that a lot of people or something credible backs up your personal belief, you tend to become more certain in that belief. And this is important because a lot of research from countries where these kind of polls are popular, like from the US and UK, has shown that voters can and do change their vote if it jars with the with what the pollsters are saying is the common uh, common preference. So for instance, if you are told that party X is actually the popular one at the moment, and you had were initially going to vote for party Y, that poll might cause you to question, hmm, am I doing the right thing by supporting party X, or should I maybe change my vote? That's uh, one important thing to bear in mind. The second is that even when the polls are accurate, they can actually have an effect of changing people's decisions on whether to come out and vote in the first place. Imagine that a poll is reporting that the election is basically a lockup, that a certain party is sure to win. Wouldn't that make a difference to how people decide whether or not they should go and vote? Especially since for some people, voting can be a very, very expensive process. They have to take leave. They have to make expensive journeys back home. So if polls are telling them that, oh, you know, the vote in your area is pretty certain at this point, they might well decide not to come out and vote. So that's two things so far, confirmation bias and the voter turnout. And the third thing I think is the actual issues that are discussed uh, in the election. I think uh, just now I, when I was listening in, uh, Sharad, you mentioned uh, the UK case of them predicting a hung parliament and then the media ch actually changing their narrative completely because the polls were discussing one possibility of a hung parliament. And I think that's a brilliant illustration of how very popular polls that go viral but turn out to be completely wrong can actually shift the entire focus of the media and the election to actually something that turned out to be quite misleading. So given these three things, I think there is a strong case to be made that, you know, there should be some judiciousness when reporting on polls. And I, I'm, I'm well aware that I'm speaking to people in the media at the moment. And just for the record, I'm, I'm not in favor of censorship of any kind. I'm generally a, a fairly, fairly free speech, speech uh, absolutist, but there definitely needs to be some sense of responsibility from the media, not just to take numbers and amplify them with viral value without first checking on whether there has been the minimum standard of academic rigor in producing the numbers. So I'm not for a ban to answer the original question, but I think there needs to be some self-regulation from the media. Yeah, we can spend some time on the media, um, and you know, self laceration is is kind of a regular <laughs> pro a practice. So don't 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 be uh, too kind on us. Look, I, you know, I think globally, correct me if I'm wrong. Globally, pollsters are on the back foot. I mean, they did not predict the Brexit results. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, even most recently with the U.S. midterms uh, elections, I mean, they they expected a red wave, and it didn't happen mm -hmm. quite as much. So. 
I mean, so why do you think the media is, um, you know, addicted to this kind of information? Well, I think the, the addiction is pretty easy to explain, which is that, you know, we're in the age where data is sexy and everyone can bring their data to the table and say that I have a, you know, this is based on data and hard statistics. But the ugly truth is that you can have 10 different statistics saying different things. And it really depends on how those numbers were produced. But to go back to a more fundamental point, you're right that all those, uh, you know, there has been a recent, I would say, swing in the proportion of the electorate that the voters, uh, sorry, that the pollsters are getting right versus wrong. And I think this is due in, in part to social media. I, I think you would agree with me when you say that, when I say that in the age of social media, trends can swing a lot faster than before, just because news can spread a lot faster than before. And when you're confronted with this kind of very volatile situation, it's hard to make predictions and it's hard to make forecasts, which is actually why I think pollsters in this case, especially if they're coming at it from an academic perspective and really trying to get at the truth, maybe might need to take a step back and ask themselves, am I certain enough in my results to make a prediction or is there enough uncertainty here that actually the most honest thing to say is, you know what? this election is a little more difficult to call than the previous one. And I don't think I should be putting numbers out there irresponsibly. You know, the context of Malaysia, I would say that this election has many unprecedented elements to it, not least the fact that we have, number one, a new demographic coming in entirely, which is the 18 to 20 segment of the population. But also we have many people who were previously unregistered now able to vote on the day. And, you know, this is a really powerful thing because previously you had to commit to the act of voting weeks before the election. And if events leading up to the election maybe made you very angry or made you very inspired, you, you were locked into your choice. If you didn't register as a voter, it was too late. But now all the people who get angry on the, you know, in the weeks and days leading up to the election, and now we're five days away from the election, things are heating up more than ever. There could be many people who make the decision to come out on the basis of what happens this week alone. And I think in the presence of this type of volatile trend with unprecedented circumstances in an election, it, it might well be worth pollsters just taking a step back and saying, let's sit this one out, let's observe it. We can share our results behind the scenes with political parties. I think that's fine. You know, just because you don't share your results in public with the media doesn't mean that there's no value to polling. You can always share your results with news behind the scenes, with politicians behind the scenes. You can engage um, your local representatives and tell them that you've done so-and-so survey. There's a lot of value in those things, but it might be well worth being a little more cautious and humble with respect to uh, polling this time around. Devish, we have about 30 seconds left. What would your advice be to members of the public? How should they engage with these pre-election predictions? <laughs> I would say make your decision for yourself. Ultimately, your vote is yours and yours alone. It doesn't have to be decided by what other people are choosing or how other people are preferring to vote. Make your decision for yourself based on what you feel is best for you and best for the country. Devish, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was uh, Devish Deva, data scientist and economist, speaking to us about the predictions that come out before elections. Uh, and we've been asking you, do you put a lot of stock in these? You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So keep it here, BFM eighty nine point nine.
You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.